So near as I can tell, there's no blizzard yet. But like last time I came here, should we like give people the saga? We because <laughs> actually I think we should. Because <laughs> the last time I came over here, unsuspecting, not even in a coat. I wasn't even wearing a coat. You were wearing your podcast vest. I was wearing vest. I was wearing my tactical podcast vest. <laughs> which I made which you take you off. Made me take because off. in <laughs> last week's episode you can hear it swish. Yeah. Um but anyway, so also <laughs> last week. I showed up here and it immediately started blizzarding. Yeah. And we got like, we were like midway through the query episode recording and I'm like looking outside and I'm like, getting nervous. Oh man, this is going to be a hoot. (laughs) And I get out there, I shoveled my car out like three times throughout the recording. Yeah. And then, no, but that that was even before I started driving, right? Yeah, I know. I helped by giving you my my beautiful coat with all of the room. Oh, I did wear your coat. I had all this this hip space. Yeah, that was really great. Um, But then, yeah, then we start driving and the car immediately stalls on some side street, which I was only on because I didn't know the way because you just moved. I did just move. That's my fault. So this was just a double whammy of a situation. And some dude in like a flannel and a cigarette came out and like helped me (laughs) shovel me out and we got it over to the side. Uh, I helped you do that. You did help me do that. Um, that was very nice of you. Thank um, you. As we all, I, w- I was not the man in the flannel with the cigarette. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, no. So and then that you was had re- to stay the night. That was really good. Yeah. So then we, you know, got good and lit, and then passed out. <laughs> that was great. Um, we sure did. I, we were all like expecting it to be like this fun bonus like party night. Yeah. And then we went to bed at ten o'clock. Yeah. It was. It was a Monday. Yeah. Um, yeah. So terrible. But anyway, welcome. <laughs> To this episode of Print Run. This dry, dry <laughs> are you, episode Are you interrupting the opening? I what? can't believe this. You've, you've never interrupted the opening before. The, well, this that's is a it. really good point, wow. but we're 58 wow. episodes in. <laughs> You're seizing here, it. You're here. seizing. <laughs> let you do it again. I'll let you do it again. Please, do it yeah, again. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane. With me, as always, is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura, since you're so eager I, I feel like I should be doing the interrupting cow joke yeah. right now, the knock-knock joke. Yeah. Hello, everyone. It is good to be here. Yeah, so today is January 29th. We've got a great show for you today covering all kinds of wild things. Um, but before we get to that, how about the basic rundown? Yeah, so we have um, we have a Writing by Reading episode left this month. Um, and if you're saying, but Laura, it is January 30th. Um Correct. We have That's one January. more day. Yeah. It's still January. We promise you this month. This month. So Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng, we are going to be talking about. Um, you still have time to get us your first pages and query episodes um, to us at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. For, if you're a Patreon subscriber, you also have time to become a Patreon subscriber. We've had a lot of people sign up lately, which is really great. Um, we kind of figured that would happen at the beginning of the year as people start to you know, think about querying and doing things in yeah. the new year. Um, and we We're also, also cheaper right now. We are cheaper because Patreon, like, pulled the okie doke on us. That was... <laughs> so it's $8 <laughs> for all three episodes, yeah. $8 a month, which yeah. is, um, like, less than a coffee mm-hmm. per 45 minutes of solid, solid tip-filled content. Mm. Um, <laughs> we have um yeah so send send us those also i should mention that if you are not a patreon subscriber you should be because when we hit a hundred we are going to be doing a special viewers choice readers listeners choice listeners that's how they consume this yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) listeners (laughs) choice uh where we will do an episode of literally anything so if you want us to read more 50 shades of gray great if you want us to just like tell stories about our caffeine habits, awesome. If you want like actual advice or like commentary on something, we'll do that too. It'll be yeah. anything. But once we hit a hundred, we can sing the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> well, come on now, you're giving them idea. You're giving them ideas. You got to just let them. We can we um, can and we can do like a live. I I don't know how to do a live session, but we could do something where you send us questions and then we discuss them. I think that I would be an absolute hit on the Voice. 
real quick. Now as a judge or as no, a... as like a contestant or as like oh. someone as like an American Idol or something. Like now that you're, th- I'm thinking about singing You've got Backstreet good hips. Boys. Like I could be like the guy who everyone like realizes sucks, but they're like cheering for him because he's just so weird looking up there. <laughs> Like I could feel like I've seen, I, yeah. I've seen you guys. You don't have this image in your head because you've never actually seen it. But I've seen it, and I, uh, I it's it's wonderful. It's wonderful. If we get to one hundred and fifty, maybe I'll take no. a video of it. No, no, no. Um, so anyway, let's talk about real things. And the first real thing we have to talk about is a little bit of a bummer um but offers a chance for all of us to kind of i don't know celebrate what is a life i think we all are pretty in admiration of in books and elsewhere um and that is the the death of ursula Le Guin. um at age God, that is a bummer yeah at age 88 um a long life at least um but she was sort of you know in that out the outpouring when it happened i think was so cool and it was like just the best of you know, book social media and just the book world coming together to just celebrate someone that um, really, I think, mattered to a lot of people, you yeah. know. Do you know what the best part about Ursula Le Guin is? Um, like her books are great. You know, you've got The Left Hand of Darkness. You have the Earthsea series. Yeah. You've yeah. got, you know, these amazing books. But what's yeah. really, really amazing about her that I'm just kind of learning Right. Because like Mm -hmm. I read her when I was a child and now I'm kind of rereading her stuff for adults, including lots of her essays and think pieces and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, Is that she was just incredibly and frustratingly proficient in every single type of thing (laughs) that she would write. So she wrote fantasy. She wrote science fiction. Like she wrote she won like the Locust, the Nebula and the Hugo multiple and the World Fantasy Award like multiple times each. She wrote, you know, she wrote fantasy. She wrote science fiction. She wrote essays. She wrote short stories. She wrote like everything. And um, we because she just died, we don't have um her FBI files yet. Yeah, we were going to frame this. We were going to frame this bit as an FBI or a fiction. I don't even remember the stupid acronym I came up with it that I was so militant about. Yeah. The FBI or the fiction author under FBI investigation of the week. Yes, that's correct. Um, that's what it was, I believe. Um, but we were going to do that for her, and it turns out we don't have the file out yet, so but we don't know. we can – I mean, there's definitely a file on Ursula Well, Lewin. someone FOIA'd it, yeah. So um, – well, hopefully that comes out soon. But the reason that exists is because for anyone who kind of follows her on a biographical level, um, she was the sort of person the FBI loves to investigate. She was super far left. Yep. Um, she she was, was like an anarchist and an environmentalist yeah. and a, and a communist. All that, all that kind of good stuff. And um, um, yeah, so. she she, you know, was a was was all sorts of things that the government doesn't like um you know the day that she died one of those like speak truth to power websites <laughs> like like posted their official like you know uh request to the FBI yeah um and she was just awesome like you know in the 60s yeah most of her characters if not all of the characters in her books were not white yeah. You know, she is famous for not having um, not having adaptations of her work or disavowing adaptations of her work because they're whitewashed or, you know, they're not um, or they're, they're cutting out like the communism or the environmentalism in there. Yeah. Um, you know, she wrote in, in 2015, she wrote this great essay for Motherboard. Um, where she's talking about it's an essay on the left, you know, mm-hmm. kind of like the left in this country, in the world, in this in this kind of moment, um, which is actually a great essay for for right now. Um, but like she she there's this there's this line in here. Um, well, first of all, she talks about libertarianism being like Ayn Rand and Ayn Rand and drag, which Hell is yeah. pretty good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And then Ayn Rand would have absolutely narked on oh, Earth, yeah. from what we know. Like she would have been like, "Excuse me, headmaster, headmaster." You know, like sort of the, um, you know, the narc in the classroom. That would have been her. She's she's writing about hermaphrodites. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um. She's writing about bisexuals. Oh, um. Man. But there's there's this line that I just like have been reading over and over and over again, and it's this. Every benefit industrialism and capitalism have brought us, every wonderful advance in knowledge and health and communication and comfort casts the same fatal shadow 
All we have, we have taken from the earth. And taking with ever-increasing speed and greed, we now return little but what is sterile or poisoned. It's like the FBI definitely had a file on her. Yeah. I mean, so she's... She's sort of everything, you know, and obviously she, in a lot of ways, in terms of the discourse around science fiction and fantasy, it felt like she was a little bit ahead of her time, right? Or at least kind of led the way on a lot of things we talk about now, like you mentioned earlier, and I want to go back to it for a second, like the, um, you know, she wrote, you know, she wrote her characters, like she wrote, um, you know, let me find it here, you know, Get from the Earthsea characters, right? Like, sort of, you know, I think that, you know, reddish brown skin was the point. She made this point because she yeah. wanted, you know her books to reflect that most people on earth are brown, you know, and they made a TV series out of it. And of course they cast, you know, they cast Ged as white in the show. And she, you know, like you, let's like you said, she disavowed it. And she said, this isn't, you know, this isn't the book that I wrote. And I think that, um, you know, let's see, let's, um, here's the quote that we've got. Um, you know, tell she t- here, this is from the Jacobin article that we got as sort of an obituary, but, um, yes, yeah, she wrote. She published an article disavowing the series, telling readers that the color scheme in her books was conscious and deliberate, and that Ged with a white face was a lie, a betrayal, a betrayal of the book and of the potential reader. And I don't know. Like we talk about these things now, and um, it just feels like on so many different things, this was someone who was writing. She was doing all this stuff, you know, before yeah. it was, you know, cool in the way that it, <laughs> like. Yeah. Um, and I think that she deserves a lot of credit for that, in addition to just writing a bunch of really kick-ass books. You know? Yeah, kick-ass books, kick-ass like, writing manuals, yeah. kick-ass articles. Yeah. Like, Ursula Le Guin, I am going to miss you. Yeah, R.I.P. R.I.P. <laughs> so, speaking of, like, modern uh, or, like, current <laughs> events, um, less, less... So we were just disavowing capitalism. Uh-huh. Thanks, Ursula. Yeah. Uh, now we're going to jump right into capitalism. Okay. <laughs> so uh, one thing that we realized um, this week is that probably a lot of our listeners don't have a ton of knowledge necessarily about, um, like, schedules. The internal in... publishing calendar. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, like, many of you might know about seasons. You know, there's fall and there's spring, and now they're starting to be, like, summer and winter and, mm-hmm. and you know, like, for publishing books. Yeah. Um, but one thing, one kind of exciting thing that happened, it's not actually that exciting for most people, but it's exciting for us, mm-hmm. is the Winter Institute just happened. Yeah, so this is um, this is a meeting. It happens every year, and we just figured in the um, interest of letting people in on what the book world is up to at any given moment. So, you know, Winter Institute is basically, you know, it's a meeting of booksellers. Right. Specifically like indie yeah. booksellers. It's like it's those kind of people getting together and putting their heads together on how best to kind of do their jobs and talk to presses. You know, like when we were at Overlook, um, you know, Winter Institute was a huge deal because we wanted to send someone to kind of talk to these presses who were or these uh, sellers who were probably more receptive, you know, perhaps than like the big meeting with Barnes and Noble or whatever. You know, like you could really bend the ear of someone who could then go sell your book in a way that felt more personal. And um, it's just kind of a meeting that gets, um, you know, I think we talk a lot on the show about the various elements of book publishing. We talk about publicists and we talk about editors and writers and agents, but we don't really talk about sales as much, you know, even though I would say like internally salespeople are probably, um, apart from being the most um, like obviously most significant and crucial to the process right like you know yeah. a sales rep for mm-hmm. your uh for your press is basically going to basically uh determine whether or not your books your season lives or dies you yeah. know like this is someone who's incredibly crucial but they're also um sales you know they're also incredibly creative in a way that i think that maybe people don't necessarily expect you know when people think of publishing they think of you know, the creative jobs being, you know, the editor in the well-lit office with the mahogany desk and the manuscript, you know, all those kind of things like that. But, like, figuring out how to succinctly talk not only to, um, you know, bookstores, but then, you know, if you're on the bookstore side to consumers um, about a book and connect it in a way that's going to, you know, really drive the sales. You know, you know when we talk about word of mouth, these are the people who generate it in a lot yeah. of ways, right? Like, sales reps are the ones who can you know generate you know that sort of enthusiasm and they're the ones who are making sure that um you know 
books are in stock where they need to be and such. Like that's an incredibly difficult task in a lot of ways. And so this is um, this is sort of the meeting for that in a lot of ways. And um, I think it's I think it's worthwhile. It's a small one. It's not as big as you know BEA or you know any of yeah. the other ones. But it's run by the American Booksellers yeah. Association. There were um, like about a thousand people there, six hundred and eighty sure. of which were booksellers. They came from all fifty states. Um, you know, it's in a different place every year. And, you know, like one of the things that was exciting is that this has been one of the best years in a really long time for indie booksellers. Um, but you know, like there's, what's really interesting to me, and, you know, we say this all the time is like the innovation for books is not coming from publishers. The innovation right now is coming in, uh, tech for readers and and for bookstores. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so there's been like a lot of focus on like AI and kind of, you know, not just, you know, how do we beat Amazon, but more of like, how are we as indie bookstores, you know, catering to our audience? Um, So, you know, over, you know, over the next probably few weeks and months, we'll we'll get more information about, you know, fun, exciting ideas that were presented at Winter Institute. Um, But just, you know. A little glimpse into something that we as agents don't get to really know about or yeah. hear about. Um, they keep it a little bit secret. Yeah, um, I think it's I think it's a good thing. Um, and I just remember like being in house. It was such a. I feel like now on the agent side, no one cares about it nearly as much. But like, well, we don't get any control over. It. Like we've got no say. There's nothing we can do in house. It felt like a pretty big deal. Like it, this was like a big thing on the calendar that we had to figure out who to send. You know, the person. You know, send. Who are we gonna? you know, have present, you know, who are we going to have, um, you know, at the table, you know, all this kind of things that you treat for even a larger conference. So I don't know. It was, yeah. Um, so this next thing. Yes. It's like, right. I can never tell. This is something I genuinely can't tell our listeners is like, if this is a thing that I love or if everyone else loves, but I will tell you that this is something <laughs> that I absolutely love, which is the fact that this last week we found out this was leaked um, to uh, CNN, Alex Jones has a book proposal out and circulating, or he did for a little while. Um, if you don't know Alex Jones, um, good he, for you. <laughs> first of all, congratulations. <laughs> Second of all, you might want to mute your ears for a few minutes if you want to continue um, not knowing. Oh man. Um, so Alex Jones is a far right conspiracy theorist. He runs a site, Infowars. I'm sure you've heard of it. His um, He's famous for like four hour like YouTube shows where he just like turns red and sweats. Oh, he turns and like just... yells and cries and like sells herbal suppu- supplements. Yeah, he definitely sells a lot of supplements. Is yeah. basically the point. But... John Oliver did like a big yeah. thirty minute takedown. Yeah, of, it was funny. No, yeah. he's uh he's a nut job, but even more than that, he's incredibly dangerous because he's got an enormous amount of um, viewers and he uh you know. Uh, trades in some pretty toxic stuff, but Donald Trump um, loves him. Oh yeah, no, they, he's like, yeah, it's it's all really messed up. But um, he's got this book. Um, it was called "The Secret History of the Modern World and the War for the Future." Um, a that terrible is terrible title. <laughs> this is from the CNN uh, article here, um, and the book is quote about the front lines of the war for your mind. And the chapters will cover the past, present, and the future. That's descriptive. That's great copy. Great job, everyone who my, is trying to sell this. My favorite um, thing about <clears throat> this is that that is the vaguest ever. And yeah. this this proposal is only 27 pages. Yeah. Like, propo- nonfiction proposals, you guys, are, like, really, really, really long. Well, they've usually got, like, sample work and stuff. Is, yeah. Is what and, or, but, like, they also have, you know, like, if, if somebody's a, a public presence, they've got, like, a really big promotion section and kind of all of this. And it's just, like... Yeah. 27 pages and that's as specific as you could get yeah um but even more than that this so what jumped out to me about this was kind of the reaction to it in that everyone so we the world found out that alex jones had a book proposal being shopped around by an agent by the way there's a, there was an agent involved theoretically in this process you know so he well Al- they, they have an agent but the agent is saying that they don't represent the book yeah he disavowed it <laughs> so um but that's what kind of struck me is this book we found out this book existed and what did the publishing world do immediately it laughed right it laughed and yeah. it got the alex jones jokes off because he's a incredibly like every second he's like he's a laughable figure and like he's crazy you know what i mean like you look at him and um he's very easy to point out and say that's someone we should not be taking seriously but 
Um, it just kind of made me started making me think about like where the lines are in publishing because as we've established many times, um, publishing is not afraid to publish just about anyone that they think has a reasonable audience. You know, they, you know, whether it's the Milo book or whether it's even like, you know, well-to-do types, you know, that can put on a suit well, you know, people like David Frum, you know, like anyone who can, um, basically if you can like tie a tie and like sit there and do a reading, they'll let you have a book deal, Yeah. you know? And it's, you know, people with a lot more toxic views than Alex Jones have book deals. And it's easier it's easy to point at Jones and be like, Wow, this is a you know, this guy's a nightmare. He says all these horrible things. We she should never be allowed in kind of our mainstream public sphere. But that what that says to me mostly looking at the publishing landscape is that the line seems to be based on sensationalism and not substance. You know? Yeah. Like the reason we were so you know, we got rid of Milo, you know, once not for any of the things he was going to write the book about, we were totally fine with the book. Is is when he said that when we found out he said that thing on the radio show, right? Like, yeah. In here, you know, it's not that, um, you know, we don't want Alex Jones to necessarily publish the substance of his ideas. I some because someone does. I assure you that there is someone in publishing who is seriously thinking, man, it would be cool to have the Alex Jones book. That one would really make a wave. <clears throat> um, and it just makes me think that I really hope. And they did it right. Like to be to be clear, like the you know the disavowal by the agency and the you know all this stuff that's this backlash that's occurred here before the deal. Thankfully, this time we don't have to like trade and give back two hundred fifty k. Right. Um, I just want the line around some of these people who get book deals, and I know I, I tweet about it a lot, but like I want it to be based on something stronger than that's what he's he behaves like a ridiculous cartoon character as opposed to. The substance of, you know, the thing that he's saying is incredibly toxic to, to mainstream discourse, which is the real reason that Alex Jones shouldn't have a book deal and why lots of these other people shouldn't have a book deal. And I just it just makes me think because I wonder, you know, looking at this stuff, you know, as things move, you know, and one this is something Ursula Le Guin talked about a lot, too. Right. Like, yeah. she said a lot like this kind of ever present creep to the right that America seems to keep doing, you know, and it's are we going to hit a point where Alex Jones doesn't sound as ridiculous? And is the reason, and I wonder if the reason he might not is someone else is going to come along who's even crazier than him. And suddenly Alex, you know what I mean? Like, it's not crazy to me within the next few years for someone to think that it's a reasonable idea to give him a book deal. It sounds crazy now. I worry that it's not going to be. And the only reason it wouldn't be is because our lines are based on sensationalism and public response as opposed to substance. How long do you think it's going to take before somebody publishes this book? Well, someone's going to. Yeah, you know I, I, mean? I like, agree. Is, so I mean, like, this is just money. Well, let's, like, just, let's, yeah. just, let's check the boxes, right? We've got a public figure with a huge media presence, yep. with a network of full of devoted fans who wants to write a book right in his strike zone that everyone, like, people would buy it. Ironically, people, like, I can picture, like, all of, you know, left Twitter purchasing this book as a means to laugh at it. You know what can I mean? I, can I just, it, like, put in a a, a, a plea here? Stop <laughs> stop buying things ironically. Like Your money is not ironic. Yeah. Your money is not ironic. You're, it's, it's, yeah. you're, you're, yeah, don't do that. Yeah. Um, it's, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I guess just, like, it's easy. It was amazing to me watching this unfold, the ease with which people were able to point and go, ha ha, of course he doesn't get a book deal. Because I've laughed at people and said that. And then a week later, they're like, my next book will be published by whatever giant mainstream press you thought was respectable <laughs> coming this October. And it's like, man, like, so I just my word of caution is like, let's really evaluate the reasons why this is unacceptable and why we rightly made the decision that this person shouldn't have a deal. Well, we didn't. And, it's just that nobody shopped this book yet. Yeah. Well, like that's, but, that's kind of the yeah, thing. But I yeah. think that this this backlash, you know, people we found this because the entire book community was laughing at it. You yeah, know, like, that's, that's and true. so it w no, there hasn't been like some that's kind of the point is no one has made the proclamation. Alex Jones doesn't get a book deal. But like the initial response, I think, was at least encouraging in that, wow, we all think this is ridiculous, you know? And I'm just saying we got to evaluate those lines because that line can just can move real quick and suddenly you're you're rationalizing this and you're publishing op-eds and Publishers Weekly about how maybe you're just like afraid of ideas that don't agree with yours and stupid other yep. shit like that. And that's and how we get Nazis, it, Eric. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I, for one, am hoping that there are less Nazis, not more. 
And so I would I would just encourage anyone listening to this to just really think like who else has deals that just because they present themselves a little less ridiculously than him, you know, maybe maybe we should think about those people too. I don't know. So going from there. How do we go from there? Good question. <laughs> but um, let's do it. We go to something a little, and, maybe even a little bleaker oh, it's than ble- that. It's bleaker because it's it's actual substance and it's not sensational. Yeah. Um, so this is um, something we learned about, I guess, late last week. Um, a few and, days ago, yeah. Yeah. And it's we learned that uh, Bevan, the governor of Kentucky, um, is planning or has asked his, um, you know, the state legislator to slash a bunch of programs, um, one of which or s- several of which fund the University Press of Kentucky. And that really bothers me in a lot of ways. And I think it, it's worth talking about here because um, sometimes when we talk about university presses and they kind of come up, there's sort of this perception that they are niche and small and less significant. And, and they don't <coughs> sell. Right. That's the big one, right, is that, you know, they're not really big sales drivers. You know, they're not really big players in the trade market. You know, they're just sort of like these little regional presses that don't really matter. And, like, even talking to, like, you know, I work with a lot of nonfiction, right? Like, a lot of authors, you know, at first glance, they'll be like, oh, well, you know, university press would be fine, but I'd really love to be, you know, at a big five. You know, I'd really love to be at a bigger place. And, like, you know... The thing with university presses is, is that they do so much of the real unseen work in both the publishing and just like thought and intellectual community um, than I think we give them credit for. You know, these are the people who um, publish things. You know, I'm looking at it right now, like the you know the Chicago Manual of Style is oh, a, yeah. is a university press project. You know. The Oxford English Dictionary is a university press project. You know, all these things, like any field that you could possibly imagine has some ser- has some foundational series, has some giant thing that was published by a university press that that field views as totally indispensable. I'm very confident saying that. And the reason I think it's interesting is because in addition to that, it's, it's not a ta- – you know, they don't make money in the same way that you know a traditional press does like it's not necessarily about book sales whether that's good or bad you know because um i don't know like here it is about book sales but it's not all about sales right well i mean so they're non-profits right so like they you know they're you know the sales it's you know it kind of just goes back in a lot of them goes back into the university right like and like for oxford for instance like they're you know they any excess that they make ends up going back to you know, Oxford University and funding that. Like, there's no like surplus that gets reinvested in there. They're part of. They're like a university project that is used to fund university things that often have nothing to do with, um, you know, the press itself. And so, you know, there's a quote in here from. Um, let me get this person's name here. Um, uh, Lila Lila Salisbury is the director of um, Kentucky University Press. And, you know, she says something that I think is really instructive here. And she says, this actually comes at a time when the press is doing great. Mm. And so now think about that for a second. How there's this, you know, there's this business model out there for publishing in which you could be selling books that are, you know, reading about Kentucky University Press after this came up. Um, or University of Kentucky Press, you know, you press whatever the official title is. They have all got their weird little names, but like, um, you know, these are books that have regional specificity that are really important to, you know, various fields. That you know, whatever detailed thing you need to know about a specific portion of the country, I bet you that in a specific it. history, right? Exactly, like that research and those things are being published by university presses, right? And so, she, you know, makes this point that, you know, things are things are going well for them and yet they're still under the gun because they're you know their um you know their funding doesn't necessarily come from traditional it comes from the government you know it comes from especially when it's like a state university right like it's a it's a public project yeah and this press is 75 years old yeah um for you you know and it gets six hundred and seventy two thousand dollars from the government um all of the other costs for the press 
um, are that it pays for by itself because it's got an annual book sales of about one point eight million dollars. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. like it makes way more than it takes. Right. Um, and, you know, it employs 16 people. But also, you know, this is a podcast about publishing in and and kind of like one of our goals is decentering, yeah. you know, the literary hubs, you know, the kind of idea that, you know, there's brain drain everywhere and that the only, you know, the only people and the only thoughts that matter are in New York City. Yeah. Right. Getting rid of university presses that are focused on small local things and local histories not only erases the history of those places, but it like, you know, it further degrades the idea that good content comes from anywhere. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, you know, not not every book is meant to sell nationally, you know, like, you know, I'm looking here, you know. Um, you know, University of Press of Kentucky, you know, publishes things like, you know, the Kentucky Encyclopedia, the Kentucky African-American Encyclopedia, Atlas of Kentucky, the Complete Guide to Kentucky State Parks. And then it lists some subjects that are really strong and that obviously have serious regional specificity, like, um, you know, bourbon, plants, animals, trees, right? Like that's, who is, that's Kentucky, right? Who is going to publish my <laughs> yeah, bourbon books if I mean. not for but, this press? You know, it's just such a it's such a shame because. These places, like when you think of your favorite, it has it's going to have ripple effects for um, trade presses too. Because when you think of your favorite um, nonfiction book, like go into whatever it is, whatever history, whatever um, you know, political book, all those things, um, you know, whatever argument that author who's really gifted at writing for a trade audience based on a serious topic, um, go look at the bibliography in the book. All their sources are university press books. You know what I mean? Like, this is the research that undergirds the stories that we then, you know, love to hear, even on, like, a commercial level. Like, this is the stuff that does it. And, you know, it's, you know, I think, you know, trade presses spend a lot of time talking about how easily they can, you know, outbid a UP for a book. You know, like, I know, um, at least on the nonfiction side, you know, Oxford, you know, I was in their trade division, right? And we had to spend all this time figuring out how to compete with, you know, Penguin for a hit for a big trade history book yeah. or basic books is another, you know, really great, you know, kind of trade press that leans a little more academic, but still has a little bit more money to spend on advances and things like that. You know, but, you know, the university press, you know, we would sit there and think, OK, well, the way we can win is just by being us. We can be the one who's going to make the highest quality scholarly text. You know, we can. Yeah. And that's you know, we would see proposals that would then go on to get, you know, six figure advances from whatever um you know, I don't know, whatever Big Five imprint wanted to give this, you know, the writer, you know, the deal. And we would look at these things and we would say, you know, this is this is completely not up to par. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like this this book could not it doesn't meet the scholarly standard. And I just think like um, no one ever dreams of being published by the university press, you know, when they're talking about their book deal, especially, you know, no one ever thinks about that kind of stuff. But like I'm telling you right now that publishing is much, much worse if governors are coming in and slashing programs that fund these things and you know when we talk about um you know how trump and all these people are bad for the arts right like we talk about like cutting budgets to like the um you know the national arts Foundation, yeah national arts foundation things like that you know no one ever thinks of it they think of it in terms of artists right no one ever thinks of it in terms of um scholarly publishing like this and i'm telling you that it matters just as much and it's we're all going to be a lot worse off if things like this uh, go through in the manner that they do. I'm um, hoping that something happens that will cause it to uh, not be defunded. Because yeah. if it's defunded, it will close immediately. Yeah, I mean they don't. These places don't operate with a huge amount of excess. Like it's not like, um, yeah. I mean there's no real margin here. Like if they if the money stops coming in, I mean that's kind of the game. You know, it's I don't know. It's tough, but. Um, I do think this is, I guess, you know, I saw that come up and I saw how little it was kind of being talked about in book circles. And it just made me think like, man, we got to show up for these guys, too, you know, and (laughs) I just and there are, you know, there are big, you know, there are big university presses that compete at kind of the trade, you know, Princeton and Harvard and even Chicago sometimes like and obviously like OUP. um, And they want to, you know, they can kind of compete at kind of the national audience level. But even these guys, you know, like 
we need a press that's going to really, really catalog the detailed history of Kentucky in a way that only people in Kentucky care about. Yeah. That matters. And we need to protect them, too. And I guess that's – I just hope that, you know, as we, you know, continue to talk about the publishing landscape that presses like this figure in, you know? Absolutely. I'd like to shift tax a little bit because mm-hmm. I, I have some good news yeah. after yeah. Uh, a bummer and then an earnest we call have, to help. We do have good news. We have excellent news. Um, on this, our 58th episode <laughs> of Print Run, I would like to announce that we, as a podcast, uh-huh. have finally made a best of list. We made a list. We made a list. We made a best of list. Um, so, so this is... A list of the 33 best podcasts um, that will help you write, publish, and promote your first novel in 2018. Um, it's from Lori Puma's blog. Yeah, thanks um, so much, by the way. It sounds like you know she's a listener, and we obviously we really appreciate being on anyone's list, and particularly ones that are specifically that specifically suggest that maybe um, people working on you know first time you know writing projects and stuff because that's kind of like who we picture we're we're hoping listens we're know? hoping yeah i mean we're we're, we're yeah. hoping that like literally everyone in the entire world will yeah. listen but that's yeah. a big group yeah that we're specifically targeting um so we just like this uh to take this moment and say thank you to Lori. but also we'd uh we thought that this might be a good time to spend a little like a few minutes on some specific tips for first-time novelists well if we're going to be on the list we should help the first-time novelists, we should right? we should more more than just kind of like what we do you know in between beers <laughs> talking about like alex jones and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um sorry about that so we um, so we have kind of a list of specific tips where if you are a first-time novelist <clears throat> um we we think that that you should hold near and dear to your heart as you set out on your big new writing project so tip number one you're gonna need a smoking jacket <laughs> Because if you don't have a smoking jacket, you can't be a real writer. No one will ever take you seriously. And I don't even know how you take yourself seriously. Because how are you supposed to like sit there at your desk all moodily with your bourbon? Yeah. And like, I don't without know. one. Without I, mean, I, it's... I highly recommend um, Etsy or eBay. Um, also, FYI, twenty eighteen velvet is in. Velvet so this, is in. This is your I'm year. New, you know what? I'm getting I, a new podcast vest. That's what uh, it sounds. Well, like. as long as it's velvet <laughs> and it won't like swish on air. You know, two years ago, I had a bunch of like '90s vintage, mm-hmm. like velvety. I hate that '90s is vintage now, you guys. But I had a whole bunch of like '90s velvet, like baby doll dresses, and I was like, you know what? Velvet's never coming back. And then I went into Target. Eric, I went into Target. Mm-hmm. And there's velvet everywhere. People are getting velvet couches. Got velvet coming out our ears. And I got rid of them. Now some 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 happy person <laughs> at the Goodwill is wearing my my some happy well-adjusted person without a podcast. Yes. Is, yeah. So anyway, this is your year to get a smoking jacket. I'd recommend uh, a jewel tone in velvet. Um, so that's that's number one. <clears throat> Tip number two. Um, is is kind of kind of a, a a simple thing to say, but a hard thing to um, internalize. It's don't let anyone ever tell you that you're not writing correctly. Yeah, I think that this is a big one because so many of us, and especially in this age where everyone else's writing habits are so readily available. Yeah, you know. Um, you know, like we're always talking about what we're, you know, people are online always talking about how they're writing and all these things. And like, um, the truth is that this stuff, you know, especially with when you're doing this for your first time, like the process is going to have fits and starts. It's going to involve figuring out what works best for you in terms of, you know, your process. Are you an outliner? Are you a, um, pantser? Yeah. What you have like a dichotomy here. What is it? It's pantser and what? Uh, a pantser and plotter. Yeah, okay, good. There it is. Um, but, like, <laughs> the point is, like, you know, are you someone who writes, you know, before work? Are you someone who, you know, like, all these sorts of little things that, you know, people are going to say, well, you got to do it this way. Well, no, you don't. Um, also, it changes throughout the book and from book to book. Yeah. That's one thing. Like, every book that you're doing, you're learning how to write that specific book. No, that's true. And I would just say, like, my only real advice for it you know, having 
you know, worked with, you know, a bunch of writers on exactly this. Um, you know, find what works for you and, you know, you'll figure it out and take advice where you can. But once you do find it, the, you know, do make an effort to be consistent with it. Yeah. You know, like, cause I do think habit, you know, it is, it can both be true that your, you know, your process is totally unique, you know, and is going to involve some, you know, things that, you know, no one else can incorporate. But even then it does involve some like basic you know, a little bit of discipline and a little bit of, you know, um, habit making and things because it'll just be easier once you're in a rhythm. You know, like that's how – so it's like don't let anybody tell yourself what works and what doesn't. But once you know, make sure you are telling yourself what works and trying to hold yourself to that, you know? So kind of in a in a related thing mm-hmm. um, with what people are trying to tell you, um, a lot of people will – kind of conflate writing and publishing. And I know that Eric and I do that a lot on the show um, just because, you know, it's kind of easy shorthand and they're very, very related industries. Mm -hmm. Um, But publishing is not the same thing as writing. Nope. Like you have to be good at one to, or you have to be good at writing to be good at publishing, not necessarily the other way around. Um, But, you know, you kind of like you do one and then you do the other. And like really focus on and we're talking about that first one. We're talking about writing here, you know, so like, yeah, it's easy to get swept up in, you know, trends or, you know, how to best to query or trying to do all these things, you know, that we so often talk about. But, um, you know, be patient with that stuff. Worry about publishing later. Yeah. None of that business stuff um, should get in the way of you just like getting words on paper. Well, th- and it, all these kind of come down to the same idea that writing a book for the first time is such a strange and unusual task. And like, it's something that is going to be really hard. And we're going to get to that in a second. But like, you have to be able to simplify your thinking a little bit. Yeah. Somewhere, you have to be able to cut yourself a break somewhere along the line. And the place you can probably do it is just quit worrying about the publication process until it's time. Like, that'll always be there, you know? Um, so just. Go slow. Take, you know, reduce your thinking to just producing the book and quit worrying about everything else. Yeah. Um, One of the most important tips that we're going to give out today is this one. You better learn your Hogwarts house. Why? Because. I hate this tip. What? Tell me. (laughs) I don't know why this made it onto the document and I'm protesting it. Because if you, you're eventually as a writer going Uh to be talking with other people on social media uh-huh. who are writers and everybody has very strong opinions about what Hogwarts house they are or what Hogwarts yeah. house their characters are or something. And you don't want to just be standing there like a rube and not know what Slitherpuff is. No, it's what did you just say? Slytherin and Hufflepuff put together. You can mix it? No, not te- not people, according to canon. You people are like, animals. But like I technically... Well, I don't know. Pottermore says I'm a Ravenclaw. I think the older I get, I become a Slytherin. My blood pressure is just skyrocketing right now. I'm so but angry. See, you know what? It's just something that people are going to talk about, and it's going to make and you it... don't have to. You don't have to talk about that. You can just ignore those people. You can block them. But your life is going to be better. Eric is just salty because one time he drank too much pumpkin juice at the Wizarding World of Harry Potter and had a horrible time. I did do that. I had to play a tennis tournament the next day. <laughs> Oh boy. Um, but he's salty, but you should know because people are gonna ask. That's all I'm saying. Oh man, do I hate that. Um hmm. <laughs> how do we move on from that sterling bit of writing advice? Um, here we go. Don't share until you're ready. This is a big one, I think, because as soon as you know you start working. You're going to have this impulse to want to, like, prove to others that you've been doing something. You know what I mean? Like, you're going to yep. you're gonna have, like, your writing group or whatever, and you're going to start, like, filtering in chapters. And, like, the thing that happens with this stuff is that everyone who looks – no matter who it is, everyone who looks at your work, every single last person, you're going to say, I don't want your impression. I'm just showing it to you. They're going to have an impression. They're going to tell you what it is. And suddenly you've got another voice in the room. Yeah. You know? And this is especially true in this, you know, era of um, online writing groups and, like, so easily accessible um, communication features where, like, you don't have to share your work until you feel that it's ready to be shared and critiqued. And, like, that goes editorially, too. Like, at least for me, like, a process that I think is really important is, like, um, 
get something to a stage where you don't know how it could be better before you let someone else tell you what you already know. Yeah. You know, like that's not useful. So like don't share don't share until you're ready. And like the the corollary corollary, how do you say it? Corollary. Corollary. I've it's always like said coronary. I've always said cor- corollary. <laughs> Because it sounded better in the history. You want to know why? Because it sounded better in the history book, the the Roosevelt Corollary. <laughs> like it's it sounded better that way. But um, anyway, um, one tip for writers <laughs> is if you're if you're a big reader, you are going to learn most of your words just by reading, and you'll never hear it said out loud. Um, learn how to read the phonetic alphabet. So when you look it up in the dictionary, you won't say corollary. Corollary. Cor- corollary. Yes. Um, but okay. anyway, the other part, the the corollary to this rule. <laughs> Do is, you feel like more of an adult now? Mm, we just had a whole conversation about what Harry Potter Harry Potter house we're in. You're so, definitely so, a Slytherin. So no, I feel like I'm about 11 years old. But um, lo- no one to log off, and like that's true. I mean, we make a ton of jokes about social media and everyone being always online and stuff. But we're like, always online. We, oh, I'm constantly. But like. The thing of it is, is that social media is designed to distract you. It's designed to shallow out your attention span. That is the like basically the stated goal at this point. And whether or not you think you're producing reliable work or, or not, um, you're probably not when you're already addled by you know Twitter and stuff. Like you're not going to write your best work when you're have this whole other drain on your attention span. Plus, you're probably watching every other person, you know. Talk about how they've already finished whatever chapter they're on. And here's everyone else, you know, talking about all their great writing accomplishments and all these things. And, like, sometimes it's a space that you just have to step away from in order to be your best creative self. And I think that understanding when that is and knowing that sometimes you have to kind of guard your your focus and your attention span a little bit better than that to produce the work you want to produce is, I think, honestly, now in the modern age, like, one of the most important writerly skills there is. Yeah. But... So one of one of the other really important ones um, is like do whatever it takes to make yourself comfy. So if that means that you should need to get like a special writing mug and a nice caffeine addiction, mm. um, That's me. just like lean into it. You know, like lean into it. Have you seen that mug that our our boss got me? It's like this giant thing with my face eating a donut on it. Yeah. No, yeah. I asked for one and I just got one that says I like big books and I cannot lie, which is good, but it's not. It doesn't have Eric's face eating a donut uh, on it. Yeah, that's a good mug for writing. So that's his special writing mug and the nice caffeine addiction he's been cultivating for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, like just just kind of like lean into it. Like, you know, you're nice. You're nice process, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know. Get a get a pet if you want so you can like tweet about how your pet is keeping you from writing. But like really they're just like looking at you from the floor and going, keep writing. Oh, my gosh. This dumb pet. And it's like a perfectly staged and filtered cat picture with like all this like perfect setup that clearly took like half an hour to put together. Yep. I would like to note that during this recording, uh, my cat was not doing any of that. He was just like randomly jumping up on the table and then like trying to open a cupboard in the bathroom. Yeah. So I well, don't have that. But if I was a writer, well, I would have to trade him in for a better hell, model. So. <laughs> I'm joking. Pet lovers, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> another thing. Um, uh-huh. Writing, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of opportunities to kind of spend money on this. You know, yeah. there's there's kind of simultaneously the idea that writing is a free hobby, but also that if you're not spending money on it, you don't care. Yeah. Um, Writing doesn't need to cost any money, but it's fine if it does. So if you find yourself where you need like a special program that keeps your chapters separate and you pay a monthly subscription for, fine. If you want to go on a writing retreat, fine. If you want to go to a conference, fine. If you want to take a class, fine. If you don't do any of that, also fine. Do whatever yeah. works for you. There's not like, like I think with some hobbies or, some, you know, there's kind of this understated um, like you're gonna have to spend this much to really participate in the manner that's necessary, and yep. the truth is that doesn't really exist here. Like, um, you know, if you're in, you know, people go to conferences and you know they pay a bunch of money and they get nothing out of it, and some people go to conferences and they get the one tip or the one insight they need to finish their book and be perfectly well off. So it's like, it's just a matter of, um, 
doing what you feel is right, you know, but don't feel like this pressure to spend money, you know, and I think that sometimes people do. And there's obviously, you know, we are one of them, you know, people who are constantly like saying, hey, look at this writing service, you know. You to know, be fair, you know, we're only $8 a month, though. So. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the point, though, is that like you don't have to like there's no amount you're going to pay that is going to make you successful is going to suddenly flip the script you know like you've just got to do what feels right and you got to do what feels like it's feeding into that process and like so our last one here is and i think this is a really important one um is to treat editing as a part of the creative process of writing and what that basically means is that um, well, at first, it, sh- it should free you up because it should mean that you feel less pressure to produce a really clean first draft, right? You can just write, and I'm a big believer in like getting to the end. You know, give yourself a full document that you can work with, and then treat editing with the same and revising with the same vigor that you treat the writing. You know, I think no one ever talks about um, editing with the same romanticism that they talk about the writing, you know, writing is like this beautiful, creative, generative process. And then like editing is like the we'll thing, suck the life it, out yeah, of you. editing is like the thing you do that ruins all that. <laughs> and I, I think that that's not the case. Like if you treat editing as like a necessary step in your own writing process, you're going to feel a lot more free and you're going to realize that you have a perfectly creative step to deal with the same things that um, you thought you had to catch in the writing phase earlier. And I don't know, like I think that, um, you know, it's it's like that that axiom that you know it's you can just produce a shitty first draft and that's fine and that, that is fine. Like truthfully, like you don't have to produce this sterling piece of work the first time through. And in fact, realizing that you don't is often what you need to do so. Like you can use it as a means of getting to the end and then trusting yourself to go back later if that's part of your process. I don't know. And on that note, I'd like to thank you for joining us for this, our 58th and momentous episode where we are now on a list. I don't care what Hogwarts house you're in. I think I'm secretly a Slytherin. <laughs> J.K. Rowling thinks I'm a, thinks I'm a Ravenclaw, but I think oh, I'm a Slytherin. Oh, my God. I'm going to keep talking Stick about this offline until Eric is just like... Turkey fork in my <laughs> abdomen. <laughs> Too bad that's in a bin in the basement. <laughs> Um, (laughs) thank you for joining us Um, stay tuned for writing by reading uh, tomorrow and we will see you for our regular episode on Tuesday 